now stay tuned for that beloved show that everyone likes. That's right, the Daniel Hard Show. With your host, Daniel Hodge. Thank you very much. Thank you, thank you, thank you. That was wonderful introduction. Thank you, Bob. Thank you, thank you. Well, we have a wonderful show for you today. And, uh, unfortunately, it's not the full hour. That's right. It's just a few minutes, because we have a lot of shows to do, like the Dr. Ruth show, and all them shows like that. But, don't worry. We'll have them for you. Anyway, let's get our first guest out here. <laughs> Yo, man, that was me, circa 1987. Man, that's your boy, Dan Hodge. I told you. I told y'all I've been on the air for a long time. You like that? Oh, man. Coming up next here on Profane Faith. Welcome to Profane Faith, a podcast that engages faith on the margins. Faith that has been labeled profane, nonconformist, and or out there. We'll be exploring the intersections of the sacred, secular, and profane to find God. I'm your host, Daniel White Hodge. Well, welcome to Profane Faith. Here we are, episode one. Wow. What y'all think of that recording <laughs> at the beginning? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was me. That was me. That um, that little TDK cassette that you see on the website. Yo, that was your boy. <laughs> that was your boy. Um, a little background on that. You know, when I was a kid, I mean, I've always been into like audio recording. I've always been into um, like just studio type stuff, right? Um. I can only imagine, you know, my daughter has, you know, her school gives her an iPad, right? I mean, I can't even imagine if I had that kind of power in at, at, the, at my disposal when I, when I was her age. I would always want to record things. And, you know, and my brother was broke. So what did I do? Well, I would record shows right off the tape, you know, or off the TV, just bootleg and everything, right? I would go out and get my little TDK cassettes um, and put them in the, in the recorder and, and hook it up. I remember recording an entire um show well not a show but the entire film of the blues brothers um just on tape and i would just listen to it that wasn't like my dvr right <laughs> well there was no digital in it uh so yeah i would do this whole show and i had my keyboard i had my microphone i had my mom i we had saved up and got my little marantz uh, uh a microphone um and you know it was this nice little sony recorder and man i would just go to town i would just go to town. i thought i was just living 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 i was just i was just living out there so you know it's just funny because i actually had to find a good thing i, I realized man i was Man, it was crazy because, you know, I was I was living in Texas, which I'm going to get into here in a second about where my origins are. Uh, that's the whole first episode. Right. It's 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 a uh, it's it's a whole show on your host. How did I end up this way? <laughs> right. How did where did I get? How did I get to this point? Um, 
but yeah, I mean, I was I was really into. I mean, growing up in Texas, I was really into uh, just shooting stuff. So I'm talking about like shooting cats and all this stuff, I'm like crazy. I ain't there now. Please, please don't hear. I got I own three cats right now. I love them, but back then it was crazy. So I had to find something that was like audience appropriate and that just wouldn't put me just like on full blast. But uh, yeah, that was me. That was me. I have a few of those tapes now. I don't know what happened to all of them, but I used to record them. I used to sit around with the family. We used to listen to them, and that that was a Daniel Hodge show. And then that little that little do 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 that was like this little harpsichord like thing you would blow into, man. It was amazing. Um. So, anyways, look, this is episode one. Um. Hopefully, you've had a chance to listen to episode zero zero. That kind of gives you the overview of this podcast. But I figured, what better way to start off the podcast series? with my own journey, my own faith journey. Um, I get asked a lot, like, hey, man, you know, what, what's your story? Like, where did you come from? And here's the thing, and publicly, I have I have pushed back against giving my testimony for several reasons. Um, one, I think it's easy to take somebody's testimony and then try to impose that on somebody else's life. Or for some people, it's easy just to take that and say, well, how come I'm not successful like that? How come I didn't do this? Or how come, you know, all that comparison stuff that a lot of us do. Um, and I, it's just, that's just not healthy. My story is not your story. One of the few things I take away from T.D. Jakes, and, and here's the thing, look, I like T.D. Jakes just as a person. He's just not my type of pastor or theologian. But one of the few things that he said that was really good that has stuck with me is like, walk in your anointing. Right. Live into your anointing and and, and and to bring that into 2017 or, or, or the 21st century, uh, I would say to live in your own shell, live in your own body and circumstances. And my unique opportunities are not your unique opportunities and vice versa. Your unique opportunities are not my unique opportunities. And. I think it's important to to understand that. Um, so I figured, well, let me what you know what? Let me just go ahead and put this little podcast together. And talk about my life. So this is your boy Dan Hodge. I'm gonna be open and bare to you. So check it out, see what you think, and then holler at your boy after after the episode to see what uh, you know, see what comments you got. So without any further ado, here is my story. <laughs> Nineteen seventy four. That was the year I was a little I was a New Year's baby. I was a little thing came in. My grandmother, Dee, who you'll get to know here in a second, um, told me the story all the time. She would tell me that it was one of the coldest days I was born. Actually, I, you know, for a lot of people think I'm like just this Californian, but I'm sadly not a native. I was born in a place called Menard, Texas. And Menard was an interesting place. I'm going to get to that interesting here in a second. My grandmother would say that it was was the coldest day. I was a January baby and it was the coldest day on record in Menard, Texas. And... It was there was ice on the road. My mom was in labor. The car was slipping around all over the place, swirling, and they barely made it to the hospital. And I was born. My grandmother also told me that when I was born, I was the only black baby that the hospital had seen in years. And my grandmother. So on my mother's side is Mexican-American. I am 
fourth generation Mexican-American. My mom was third. My grandmother was second. And of course, her mom was first. And uh, my my father was African-American, Ernest Hodge. And um, he was from Oakland. My mom and dad met out there in Oakland. My mom was one of the first um, Latinx women to be uh, part of the movement, the Black Panther movement, the resistance back, back way back even then, right? People been resisting, women been resisting for a long time. And my mom was part of the Black Panther movement. So they met um, and my dad liked her and my mom liked him. And well, wouldn't you know all that loving made me and so I came into the world in 1974 and it, my grandmother would tell me that she was very racist uh, and she had some racist worldviews she said but when I she was because she was told that black people were evil that they were um, bad and that they were thieves that they were were violent but she said how could all that exist in this baby and it challenged her it challenged her own worldview and she and and i definitely felt the love from my grandmother growing up um so what happened was is that my mom's um at least how the story goes because i wasn't around at the time but my mom's she got pregnant was out of wedlock it was she wasn't you know right this traditional faith understanding of sexuality right you're supposed to be married and you know you're supposed to be with the person that you're going to be uh, uh you know raising this child with and my mom wasn't any of those things um my dad and my mom were were young my dad essentially said you know uh, i'm too young for this and he was out he was out which is oftentimes the case right men can get off the hook real easy because they don't have to carry the thing for nine ten months and so my mom was left on her own and it was a struggle for her. It was a struggle because it's like, well, wait a minute. What is a single Latinx woman with with no with, with the high school education going to do with with being pregnant? So here we go. Here's where the story starts to get even more interesting. So she went to her mom. Now, the lady I call the woman I call my grandmother is technically on paper my great aunt, Dee Dee. This is who raised me. This is who I consider to be my grandmother. Now, my biological grandmother. Um, well, you know, let's just say we've had an estranged relationship my entire life. I love her. I'm sure there's some love in there of, of her towards me, but we were just never close. We were just never close at all. And growing up, you know, I mean, I remember. You know, grandparents, they live for birthday stuff. Man, my grandmother would, my biological grandmother would never remember my birthday. She'd call me like a month later. Oh, is it your birthday? You know, Danny? Yeah, she called me Danny. I don't let anybody else call me Danny. But <laughs> she could get away with calling me Danny. And I'd be like, no, Grandma, it's it's not. You know, my birthday was a month ago. Or she called me two days early. Is it your birthday? No. You know, it's like every year is like, good night. So my mom's mom was like, look you ain't gonna have this baby not with us and so my my grandmother my biological grandmother was a very conservative baptist um uh, southern as well she grew up in, in texas they moved in they moved to california so my mom's in california at this time so i was conceived in california it's probably why i love california so much so i was conceived in california but my grandmother was like yo um mm -mm, i don't know you ain't, you ain't you ain't gonna have it we ain't gonna have it 
In fact, you should probably just get an abortion. See, yeah, you heard it. My mom brought in, was really the only one who kept the black element in the family. And if you think, particularly if you listen to this and you think, well, you know, only white people can be racist. I mean, hopefully you just still don't think that, but racism is a system. And so I'm not equalizing it. I do think there is something called white supremacy, but there is also this whole thing with color and skin. And really, when you think about it, black is at the bottom. Brown is just, you know, Latinx is just a step higher oftentimes in our societal hierarchy. And so my grandmother, my biological grandmother was like, yo, why are you keeping this baby? Now, keep in mind, all my aunties, you know, they love them some black men, but they didn't get those. They didn't keep those babies. Right. And so my mom was like, I'm not going to abort them. I'm not. I'm just I'm she said, well, if you ain't going to abort, you ain't going to do that. You are not going to raise that kid here. We ain't got nothing. We ain't got nothing to do with you. So. The lady who raised my mom's, that's a whole nother story, right? Dee Dee, she was like, well, just come on back to Texas. I'll, I'll take care of you. I'll take care of the baby. You can go to work. I'll be, I'll be the homemaker and, and, and we'll make it work. So what was my mom to do? She packed it up and moved on back to Menard, Texas, which was where I was born. Menard is and was an interesting place to grow up in. I was the only black child during my grade time there um and it was a it was a space and place that i think growing up because here's the thing i really did have a good childhood i really didn't um but you know growing growing up you don't realize it's a, it's a kid my mom did a really good job of shielding me from a lot of the mess okay and you just really didn't know. But I started to get hints of it. So when I was five, I went over to play with my good friend, Donald. Right. Donald lived kitty corner from our house. Um, and, uh, you know, we're playing. We're doing our little thing. Right. And, you know, he leaves the room for. Oh, that's right. We were playing a game. We were playing a game and I won the game. And he was like pissed. You know how it is when you win, you little kid and everything. So he leaves room for a minute. And I'm thinking, I don't know what I'm thinking. I'm just playing, having fun, right? Because toys was like the bomb back in the day. And so then, I mean, I'm facing away from the door. And then I feel this like funny feeling on the back of my head. And I turn around and it's him standing there with a double barrel shotgun pointed at my face. He says, you know, if I wasn't a different person, if I was a different person, I'd blow your nigga ass from here to eternity i remember thinking man is this dude gonna pull the trigger is it what's what's gonna happen and then he's like looking at me and i'm like looking at him and, and you know it's like one of those things like he had the power because right after that he's like nah i'm just kidding man why are you taking things so serious needless to say i never went back over to donald's house you know, and but here's the thing. That wasn't the first time that I was either a shot at or B had a gun pulled out on me. I was actually four and my mom and I were out hiking up in the up in the hills in, in Menard. We used to go hiking all the time. And I remember coming back. I was leading the way. My mom was behind me, maybe about 10 yards. And I remember walking. We were walking down down the hill and I saw this like dirt, you know, shoot up and some it sounded like something was running into a bush. I was like, well, that's odd. And then I, and then, it, and it was, and it, then what sounded like firecrackers was off in the distance. And my mom was like, get down, get down. And I'm thinking to myself, like, what, what, what's, what's going on? She's like, get down. So I got down, I ducked down, 
come to find out there's four white boys at the base of the hill shooting at us. Yeah, just shooting at us. Now, I don't know what kind of guns they had. All I remember from that event was that my mom remained calm. And I remember just hanging and just sitting there because she kept telling me it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. And I believed her. I believed her. And so I'm sitting there looking down. And so this was kind of my first introductory that, to things that were, were a little skewed. Like, was, was, was everybody getting shot at? And, you know, my mom, you know, was, I mean, it was like, I don't know, two or three hours. I think they finally ran out of ammunition, got bored or something crazy like that. And so <laughs> I, we eventually, you know, went down the hill. But there were some things that were just off in Menard. And so between the combination of my family not being estranged from my family, uh, you know, on the Mexican side, my dad being out. So I met my dad the first time uh, when I was about five. Um, and it was just an interesting interaction because it was all I remember from him was just kind of this tall black image and nothing else. Um, and it, it, so I really didn't have no really connection with him. And here's the other thing. I grew up and there was a sense of fear and anxiety, although I didn't know how to name it at the time. Being shot at, having nooses hung around your door because the Klan was very active, still active. Right. Um that it, I didn't know what words to put to it, but I knew there was something there. So consequently, when I was young, I actually had some really strong anxiety and some strong reactions to that. And so it just made me sensitive to a lot of different things, sensitive to people's tone, the way people looked at me. And so as a kid, you know, I was, you know, I would just, I would cry a lot. Like, but my mom would leave, you know, I've always had these issues with separation separation anxiety right i've had this, this these issues like are, are you gonna leave me are you gonna leave me now my mom never left me she's always been there but it was that sense of like well where am i i mean i know i know for some people it's like okay uh, uh, one parent can raise you of course but there's something unique about having a father speak into a young man's life and say i got you man and so consequently from all that, my uncles thought I was going to be gay. They thought, oh, he's being raised by two women. He has no man in his life. Because remember, this all fit into that construct in that whole element of manhood, of race, of you're supposed to be this this strong man. And of course, this ties into religion. All right. And this ties into this understanding of Men have to be men. And in order to be men, you have to go through these things that we have already preset and predestined. And one of those things was, of course, sexuality. And so my one of my drunk uncles, I remember one time said, we are going to teach this young brother how to be a man. And so what was they thinking? This was right around five or six. Oh, we're going to take him to a prostitute house and let him have sex with a woman there. Now. Let that sit with you for a second. Um, my mom thankfully intervened and caught it and it didn't happen. But my point being is that they never ceased my, my male uncles and, and just in, in general, men in general have had a hard time just under, I think we're in a different spot now. It's not as bad, but men in general tend to be like, oh, man, it's like they just gravitated to this kind of right. This fatherless black boy. And they all wanted to kind of show me like. This is where our manhood's supposed to be. And I was just like, man, yo, I don't know. But at the same time, I'm a kid and you don't know any better, right? 
commercials show men being this way. Commercials showing me that black people are supposed to be somewhat. And so there I was stuck as a young Afro Latino growing up and not and not necessarily knowing. Now, my mom kept me out of uh, kindergarten, pre-K. I didn't do any of those grades. I went right into the first grade, went right into the first grade. Um, and now looking back, my mom was like, look, I just wanted to keep this home as long as we could because we knew the dangers that were out there. We knew what was happening out there. We 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 understood it. My mom, again, having been in the movement, having been in that. So she already knew she was hyping me to that. My mom's always had a connection towards the African-American culture. I was raised. Yes, I was raised in a Mexican home, but I was raised etched and grounded in African-American ethos, if you will. My grandmother, you know, I, my first language was actually Spanish because my grandmother, uh, Didi, didn't speak English. Well, at least she didn't speak English that well. And so I learned Spanish at a very young age because that's how we would communicate. And so, I, you know, sitting there, I would play. We had about a quarter acre of, 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 of a backyard and it was just great to go out and just hang out there and, and just be a kid. I do remember just being a kid growing up. Um, and as a, and as a kid, you know, playing with Star Wars, I still remember when Star Wars first came out, even though I was just like, what, three years old, I still remember seeing it. And I remember, you know, uh, playing with those things and those were great things. Right. But then my cousins would come over, my male cousins would come over and they too would start in with you're a sissy. You cry too much, man up, you know, get into fight. You know, they'd push me, they'd punch me and be like, that's how a man's supposed to be. And so this started a whole worldview within me, but it also started generating a sense of deep-seated anger. An anger that I, to this day, have to contend with and manage. And so right around seven years old, um, you know, I started, I, I started first grade and I still remember my first day at school I remember walking in uh, my mom had bought me all these you know new clothes and everything I was excited and I remember walking in I had a, a a a vertically striped shirt multicolored shirt I had my brown hush puppies and I had my Wrangler jeans and my little baby fro was on point y'all but I remember walking in and it was like everybody's having a good time everybody's talking and the minute I walked in you could hear a pin drop and people, you know, people start whispering. Right? You know what I'm saying? You hearing that? So I'm like, man, I'm just, I'm just trying not to just pee myself. Like I'm like, what? <laughs> what is happening? Now I still remember I had Mrs. Gunther. She was my first grade teacher. And she said, "Come on over here, son." You know, and she got to know me, you know, and she got she got my name and, you know, my mom, you know, handed over. We filled some paperwork out. By now, the class is starting to talk a little bit more. And so she seated me like fourth seat. And so she, I wasn't on the front row. There was a front row seat. And I was like, please don't put me there. Please don't put me there. And she didn't. She put me in the fourth row seat. And Mrs. Gunther really treated me well. And that was good because I needed that in first grade. Hung out. And uh, the only black kid, and you know, some some of the Mexican kids, you know, I can hear them in the back. They talking about this monkey, this monkey, that, you know. Ah, I mean, that's the mayate, it's the chango, right? You know, they're talking about that, and so I knew exactly what the hell they were saying. <laughs> so I came right back at them, right? It's the words that you know I can't repeat here because I want to keep my iTunes G rating, right? And from that point on, we started really bonding, 
and uh, I really had a, I gravitated towards um, the Mexican friends of mine uh, because they were similar skin tone, right? Similar in 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 and in growing up, we could kind of relate to some of the same things. Yeah. So now we're heading into we're in the eighties now. That was nineteen eighty one, and now I'm heading into. The moment I would say the lights went on as it related to race and ethnicity. 1982, second grade. That for me is when things really started to light up. Nineteen eighty-two. Um, Nineteen eighty-two had a lot going on in it. Um, it was the last time I saw my dad, July eighteenth, nineteen eighty-two. Um, that was the last time I saw my dad. Um, like I said, he was in my life for a minute. Um, only when we would go back to California to see him, uh, my mom uh, was constantly trying to make amends and really trying to connect with her parents. Um, and it was the first time in 1982 that I realized that there was something to drift with between my mom and her parents. Right. This is one of the kind of the lights started to go on, if you will. Um, it was when I first started to realize that the world is not as happy go lucky as I had made it prior to that growing up. See, my mom growing up, uh, at least as the story was told to me. When she was four. Her mom, her dad, essentially said, well, I don't know. She wants to stay with Dee Dee. She wants to stay there because, right, they were all in Texas because my mom has brothers and sisters. And you know what, Dee Dee, will you take her? In fact, Dee Dee's name is really Josephine Falcon. Uh, that's that's her name. I I remember we there when I was when I was a kid. You know, my mom was trying to get me to call her grandma or grandma or anything or me or something like that. I'd be like, nope, Dee Dee. Didi. I don't even know where that came from. It just came out. Didi. And so I always knew Didi. That's that's what I knew. And my biological grandmother, like I said before, uh, we've had an estranged relationship. Um, and especially my grandfather. My grandfather. So I was named Raymond Daniel Hodge. Raymond is my grandfather's name. But here's the thing. My mom never called me Raymond because Raymond's technically my first name. But I go by Dan Hodge, Daniel Hodge. My mom never called me Raymond. But that's kind of a, a, a way of her trying to make this men's because she did not grow up with her parents or her biological brothers and sisters. Dee Dee raised her. And so we know when she graduated from high school, she left for the big city. She went out to the Bay Area. Like I said, where she met my dad and, and eventually uh, got impregnated with me and came back and had me in Menard, Texas. And so, like I said, July 18th of 1982 was the last time I saw my dad. He was involved in my life uh, for about, I don't know, eight or nine months after that. He, I remember one of the few things that he sent me was a stopwatch. I remember I was in the stopwatches, right? The old school stopwatches, you know, where you punch a button and the clock goes. Tick, 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 tick. That was I love those things. I don't know why I just did. And my dad, my dad got me that. Remember, he bought me a box of toys and it was like planes. I was in the plane. I'm still in the planes and the space shuttle. And he got me a couple other little knickknacks. But it was like, oh, man, 
you know, um, that you know, sometimes you just need that, right? It's just like, okay, this dude actually cares. And I know he had a couple of other kids, so I know I got a half-brother, half-sister out there somewhere. But around mid-1983, that was the last time I heard from him. That was it. Even when we would go back to visit, I, I wasn't able to uh, get in contact with him. And so that was the last time. That was it. That was it. But something else happened in 1982. 1982 also marked the time when my social consciousness was birthed. Let me explain. I think all of us have a moment where we're like, aha, things aren't things aren't right. I think we can trace those things back and I think we can, you know, look back and say, OK, that was that was it. Or or, or hopefully if we're con- conscious enough to see those things. We're able to, you know, to, to put some put some meat on it. I think for me, it was when I was in second grade. I remember coming home and telling my mom about my day and everything. And I was like, oh, mom, you know, uh, you know what? Here's the thing. They uh, the kids, you know, because she was asking me how my day went. I said, the kids got a nickname for me. She's like, oh, really? She's like, well, what kind? And I was like, oh, it's nigga. I was like, you know, it's like, hey, nigga, come here. Hey, nigga, go get the ball. Hey, nigga, come on over here. And my mom was like, What? what the hell you just say? (laughs) And she began to really give me a deep seated history of where black folks come from, of what that word meant. And it really, really began to settle in that, wait a minute, I'm the odd one out here. So what, wait a minute, what's happening here? And so it took a few more years to just figure out, like, what is this going on? I remember in um, when, I, when I started middle school, um, I was the I had really good teachers up until about the fourth grade. Mrs. Williamson was the last teacher I had um, that really tried to connect with me, that really kind of understood, like, you're the odd person. I get that. Good teachers didn't stay in Menard. And why would you? I mean, you know, no disrespect to Menard, but yo, it is a small hick town, 1,200 people total, one stoplight. And we got that like in 1985. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, it just wasn't the place for me, man. You know, um, and so, yeah, I mean, I remember in junior high, you know, I, I took up tennis. I think I could have been a really good tennis player if I had, had the right coaching and the right, um, the right preparation, but I didn't. And people just assume that I would just be this superstar, right? Because that's what black people did. They were entertainers. They were athletes. And I remember being on a, on, on a tournament with, uh, with, with the tennis team. And I remember walking. I was getting ready to go on this court. And I remember walking by this group of white boys. And they were like, is that a nigger? What is that? Right? And so there was everywhere I went, it was constantly this. And here was the thing. Um, I grew up with a very low self-esteem of myself, real low self-efficacy that I that I struggle with even to this day. It's a lot better now. Thankful for therapy and uh, good pills. Right. <laughs> but the reality of it is, is that I struggled. And and one of the struggles with was with the way I looked because no one would date me. Even when people were supposed to be dating, right? I mean, hearing all these stories about, oh, I dated this person. Oh, I like this person. I like this. I like, and no one would date me. And I, we would get, I get these, like these little cards, like, oh, Dan, I think you're cute. Like, oh, I think you're cute too, right? And then it would be like nothing. And then they wouldn't even talk to me. And here I am thinking, 
This had a lot to do with me. Well, it did in one way, but it didn't have to do with what I thought it had to do with. Years later, I would find out that a lot of women were like, man, I was I was attracted to you. But there was no way I was going to be able to bring home a black man to my family. There was no way my dad would allow me to even have a conversation. So when I would bring it up, I was told to just leave it alone or else. You see what I'm saying? You see what racism does? And you think, okay, well, man, dad, that's rough. Here, let me give you another example. <laughs> Growing up in Menard, I remember it was sixth grade and we had a Halloween dress up contest. And one of my friends, one of my associates, however you want to put it, came dressed as a Ku Klux Klan member, hood, noose and all. He even had his junior Ku Klux Klan badge on and won first place. All right. So that just gives you a little bit of insight into where the mindset was. Yeah, let that set in. Let that set in. And so by the time I reached middle school, um, I was in full rage. I was in full anger. I had a lot of anger. Now, in Texas, as you know, football is a big thing. So I got involved in football. My mom didn't want me to play at first. And that added a whole nother layer, right? Because it was like, see, you're raised by two women. They're not even allowing you to play football. See, you need a dad, Dan. You need a dad. You need a man in your life. So that added a whole nother layer of stress, right? Right around the time that puberty's kicking in, right? Right around the time that hairs are appearing where hairs weren't before. Yeah, man. So it was crazy. So middle school comes. I'm finally playing football. It's like seventh grade, right? Right around that time that you hear that Daniel Hodge show. And, you know, I'm, I remember, you know, just trying to fit in because here's the thing. Once you're oppressed and once you're put in those situations, oftentimes a lot of people turn right back around and then want to go and oppress other people. And so that's what I would do. I would look for the person I thought I could take out because it, it, it's it's part of that cycle of oppression. And and it, it, it you know, I didn't know any better. I look back now like, wow, what was going on? Because here's the thing. I'll back up even further. In fourth grade, so fourth grade was my last good year in, 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 in like elementary school. But fourth grade, I met a whole bunch of older cats. See, in Texas, see, this is this is why it's a foreign to some of you guys listening, right? Because you think, oh, well, you know, students, they just get, get, get passed on. But in Texas, at that time, in this place, if you didn't make the grade, if you failed, you just stayed in that grade <laughs> until you passed, so when I got to fourth grade, I met a bunch of folks who would in all regards should have been in middle school. And man, whew, it was crazy because I was introduced to another way of living. See, up until this point, I was like getting beat up. You know what I'm saying? It was just like a, it was like, man, you could expect a fight, you know, at least once a week. You know what I'm saying? Because the middle schools would come over and pick on the fourth graders and be like, hey, man, that's that little nigga boy. He don't know how to fight. He ain't got no daddy. So they would fight. These guys showed me how to defend myself. These guys showed me how to live, but live at a different space. And using my fists. And they say, look, man, if you're going to survive, you got to learn. And they were the first ones to really just show some mercy from as 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 men, as older men, as younger, older young men. They were the first ones to show some mercy and be like, all right, we know you're being raised by two women. But here, look. Ain't nothing, no disrespect with that. But here, young blood, here, 
let's show you how to do this. And I remember my grandmother actually pulling them aside because one of them, how we all met was like one of them came up to me and he was like, hey, Dan, how you doing? I was like, hey, how you doing? And he like need me in the groin. <laughs> it's like one of those things that guys do. Like, what the hell? Men do some crazy, stupid stuff physically. Right. And I remember just, you know, as a kid, you just wail over like, oh, man, I was hurt. So I remember I told my grandmother, she's like, oh, I'm going to go talk with him. So Didi went over there and she was like, look, fellas, he needs protection. He needs some help. I can't teach him how to fight, but y'all can't. And from that point on, it was on. I entered fifth grade, you know, and I at least knew how to defend myself. I knew how to get out of a headlock. I knew how to throw a punch. I knew how to take a punch. I knew how to, well, run when you have to, because some cats, you know, they don't like white folks don't like getting beat up. And so they come back with guns and knives and stuff, man. And so sixth grade came. I remember, you know, we was, we was, we, we had different classrooms and everything. And so sixth grade came, it was, I had a new principal, um, and, uh, a new principal, Mr. Watson. No one could understand Mr. Watson. We couldn't, they called him Cottonmouth. All we could understand out of him was D hall detention, right? That's all we could understand. Out of him. But here's the thing, Mr. Watson, <laughs> Back in the day in, in Texas, and I think in some schools they still do this, but they used to do physical discipline. In other words, what that means is they would give you licks. They would paddle you on the butt. And Mr. Walson was losing his eyesight. And so when he would paddle the boys, he would miss sometimes and hit their back, hit them in their knees and everything. Oh, man, it was brutal. Brutal stuff. I know for those of you who are teachers listening, be like, oh, my gosh, Title Nine and all this. Yo, them things didn't exist. They didn't exist. So seventh grade comes and I'm in middle school and I'm just, I'm loving life. Cause now I'm playing basketball. Everybody thinks I can dunk. I couldn't dunk. Everybody thought I was Michael Jordan. I must've looked like every famous black person ever. I mean, Michael Jordan, I was looking like, um, who else? Uh, uh, Marvin Gaye, uh, even though he was dead. Uh, I was looking like Quincy. Jo I mean, you just name it. I was that Earl Campbell <laughs> way back in the day as a football player. I was looking like him. And it was just, again, it was just one of those things. I mean, and people would just talk openly, right, about, oh, nigger this, nigger this, nigger this. And so it was just part of the ongoing DNA and the ongoing madness that was my life. But I didn't know it, but I was growing. I was growing in rage. I was growing in anger. Fights became more consistent. Fights became more um, steady, more violent. And I didn't understand how to put all these things into perspective, and around the time, the end of my seventh grade year, my mom and I started talking about moving and the possibility of leaving Menard. I was excited as I'll get out. And there were some things that was coming together that made it very interesting for that move. My mom had met someone. Yeah, she had met someone. She had met someone who on all accounts and all bases seemed to really embrace me. Cause a lot of the men who would come over be like, you know, looking at my mom being like, Oh, cool. You cool. But uh, you're coming with a kid and he's black. <sighs> Sorry. Nope. I'm out of here. And speaking of my mom, you know, I love her to death. She's my G moms, but my mom was always the other woman. And so seeing that I saw a different perspective of women because I saw how my mom got dogged out. I saw how my grandmother got treated Didi. I saw how men disrespected my mom and it made me and it, it, it seated inside of me a sense of 
I don't I don't want to be that 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 dude. I don't want to be that guy. But that guy, that goes against right the traditional guy code of like, no, you got to be that dude because that's what men are supposed to do. Now, thankfully, my mama raised me right. And so I got an early sex education because my uncles would tell me all kind of crazies. I remember one uncle told me, oh, look, first time you have sex, dude, you know what I'm saying? You gonna have blood in your semen because that's your cherry being popped. And I was like, man, shut the hell up. No, it's not. Who told you that? I said, my mom. Oh, she wrong. I said, no, she not. Look, here's a here's a damn textbook. <laughs> Read it. Eighth grade is hitting. Now we have another change happening. Another shift is coming. My mom was like, F it, we're going to California. It's where you wanted to go, it's where I've always been wanting to get back to. This is where we're going. And so consequently, if you know anything about the hood and what was happening in the 80s, particularly around black and brown families, crack cocaine ran rampant throughout the inner city, throughout places that were ghetto. And so as a result, my mom fell prey. And to go from this activist, this person who raised me and gave me insight and gave me knowledge to the actual antithesis of all that. And that is a, an addict. It was tough. It was tough to see. It was tough to deal with. It was tough to embrace. So when we got there, my mom fell, fell to that and she fell into a deep, dark place. And I tried to help, but at the same time I'm dealing with my own stuff. So I'm coming from a rural environment. I didn't even know a difference between Crips and Bloods. I remember my friend at the time, the guy that I met, he was just like, look, man, you can't be wearing that red shirt around here. This is Crip country. And I was like, what? What is Crip country? <laughs> right. And so I essentially had to raise myself. Um, I remember the one of the guys that helped raise me was actually a family friend. My mom um, knew uh, some folks. And in uh, this was now way we were in California. My mom knew some folks from back in the day and they always said, look, you know, your son is our son. We'll help. We'll raise him. And so Vince Fowler was uh, that was his name. And he was like the cool cat. I was like a freshman in high school. He was a senior. Um, you know, he drove the cool car. He had a Porsche. His brother had a Porsche, a five speed Porsche driving around and i was like this dude oh my gosh all the women loved him so i'm thinking man this is the dude and he took me under his wing my mom's on crack he's like look i got you and i was like man this i finally got me like this little father figure right now i didn't know vince was into drugs he didn't do drugs he sold them and one deal went bad. He ended up uh, killing this young kid and uh, they caught him and uh, he went up for 25 years. And so Vince was out of the picture. Now, his brother Rocco tried to step up and tried to be, you know, fill in that space. But Rocco was older. Um, he was a little bit more of a loose cannon. 
I remember Rocco and I, man, we must have gotten kicked out of every little hoodie store just in that whole dang environment there. Uh, This was Central Coast, California. And I... (laughs) It, I remember Rocco, I mean, he, we would just roll down the street and, and just talk smack. We would go into places and steal. I mean, it was just it was like the Wild West. Right. Um, And so Rocco, showed, you know, essentially told me, like, look, man, you need to have a street hustle. You can't be you can't just be out here like this. Vince is gone. You're going to have to man up. Your mom is on crack. Look, you're going to have to man up. You're going to have to find something to do. Like I said, my mom's a G. She self-initiated a detox system. I remember she was like, I'm going to get off this because I need to be better for you. And she just took a whole, she just went and she just did it on her own. Uh, I'm blown away to this day. I'm like, whoa, what the hell? And by this time she had cleaned up, she's gotten off crack and she was just like, no, you know, police officers like, yeah, they, you know, they're buttholes, but she's like, you know, you still have to listen to what they have to say and everything. And I'm just like, no, this is, this is what's happened. So when we saw those tapes, of Rodney King or that tape of Rodney King getting beat. It was like, man, I feel sorry for the brother, but thank God somebody finally caught it on tape. Yeah, we were happy. But another change was coming. Another change was coming. Entering my senior year. Oh, some crazy stuff was popping off. my senior year class of 1992 you go back to my senior yearbook which in the chicago area i actually have in my office our entire class decided to turn our page our senior page upside down so that we could be remembered (laughs) can you believe it um i look back now i'm like what were we thinking hey what it was unique no one's ever done it before so you have to turn the, the yearbook upside down April 29th, 1992. Um, If you can remember that, if you remember back, or maybe you weren't old enough to remember that time, that was when the verdict of the Rodney King trial was put out. Um, I'm in Northern California at this at this point, uh, but I had strong connections to Southern California and just uh, between friends and uh, who I would call play cousins. and stuff. we would go back and forth between L.A. uh, and the Bay. And, uh, you know, I, I remember ex- exactly where I was at. It was one of those moments, right? I was in fourth period English. We had a closed circuit television in our classroom. Our teacher wanted us to learn, you know, the civic engagement. And so she put on the, uh, the Rodney King verdict. And here I am thinking, this is going to be an open and shut case. We're going to celebrate. These cops are finally going to get what they deserve. They're going to go to jail. They're going to be convicted. You know, I mean, it was a little funny that the trial got moved to Simi Valley, which at that point was predominantly white. It ain't no more. But at that point, it was predominantly white and affluent white people. And so but, you know, it didn't face because I was like, this is an open shut case. I mean, the dude. Yeah. OK, he was drunk and he's fled from police. OK, I got you. But really, yeah, y'all had to beat him that much. This is what we've been talking about here. Let's I in well, honestly I really wasn't even paying attention. I was I was getting ready for lunch because I was like I was a senior. I was back on top again. I was gonna go out there and handle business, go celebrate. 
here comes the verdict. Not guilty. And I saw red. I saw red. I saw it clear as day. And I, from what I can remember at that point, I remember being like, what? And I remember hearing other people saying, what? I mean, even my teacher was just like, oh, whoa, wait. And I remember saying, oh, hell no. And I remember immediately walking out the classroom with like 20 other my friends. And we were joined by 20 more of our friends. And then before you knew it, we the entire high school had come out of their classrooms and were assembling because we were going. And in fact, we started going around, um, you know, knocking on doors. Man, they found him not guilty, not guilty, man, not guilty. And so then we started assembling and organizing. A friend of mine pulled the flag out, started burning it. The principal came by. He's like, no, 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 no. You know, we're like, we ain't going back to class. We ain't going back to class. And he was like, okay, well, let's. Let's go have a talk. Let's go have a talk. Right. He's a white guy. You know, you didn't know what to do with all these niggas. Right. He <laughs> didn't know what to do. So he pulled us in there and then the news starts to show up. Right. He's like, oh, well, I convened a meeting like you didn't convene nothing. You didn't have no choice but to convene something. And I remember thinking this ain't going to be enough. I mean, how much longer do we take this stuff? Yo, I mean, we've been sitting here taking it, taking it, taking this not guilty. And then to hear him on the on the on the television, like, oh, I'm glad this is over. You know, if you, I, I'm glad that, you know, this, I'm, you know, we're going to go out and we're going to party. We're going to celebrate. I mean, they're celebrating. I was like, hell nah. So we went, we went to our little bunkers. We, we got our ammunitions. We got our guns. I was like, we're going to LA. We're going to LA. Now the car ran out of gas. We ran out of gas. It made me think for a second, should we be doing this? But then I was like, hell yeah, I should be doing this because I, this was the first time in my life when I said I am willing to die just to prove my existence. Now, I know that sounds backwards to some of you because maybe you've never been in a place where you've been so oppressed, so put back, so held in check. It was like a military coup, not even a coup, excuse me. It was like a military occupation. I can relate to many Palestinian brothers and sisters because every time you went out, it was like, okay, where are you going? What's up? What's how what's going on? Why you, you can't pass this checkpoint you try to go into white neighborhoods it's like oh you getting you getting pulled back and so i was like i am willing to die i can understand that mentality and i was just like christianity ain't working for us right all this stuff about peace ain't working for us so i was like f it we going down we gonna handle it and for about 30 hours that's what we did we handled business and i was like look i don't want to burn up the hood i didn't loot i was like let's take this noise from South Central, and let's take this stuff over to UCLA. Let's take it to USC. Let's take it to Hollywood. Them the ones. Now, of course, we know it was three days, and then of course the uh, you know the the uh, the, the um, what is it the the armed reserves came in right the U.S. Guard, and you know we was like all right, well we didn't die, but what's got to change? And so I remember this program started rebuild Los Angeles. I remember the mayor was just like, oh, we're going to you know, we're gonna promise all this money to the riot zone. We're going to, um, you know, we're going to create um, uh, this 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 an infrastructure so that this doesn't happen again. Right. It's like, OK, great. You know, and first of all, we didn't call it a riot. We called it the uprising because we knew exactly what the hell we were doing. This was no riot. We weren't just a bunch of wild people running out there. We knew exactly what we were doing. We were uprising. We were tired of the mess. And so, consequently, 
we were able to affect some change temporarily. What do I mean by that? Well, right around this time with Rebuild LA, you know, there was a movement within the hip hop community as well. You know, rappers like Dre, Snoop, Tupac, Ice Cube came out and they were like, okay, what do we got to do? And they started putting on concerts. They started putting on benefits and they were like, okay, we're going to do this. I mean, gang killings were down from like May 1992 to about August of 1993. They were just down because the Crips and the Bloods were at a point where they were like, why are we killing each other? We have all this talent. We have all this stuff. We need to organize. We need to come together. And so rappers put, started putting together the benefit concerts. We were like, this was the first time in my life. I was like, oh my gosh, this is really starting to happen. This is really going on. But as you know, all things must come to an end. It was a short end, but it came to a quick, it was came to a quick, quiet end. Rebuild LA slowly closed their doors about eight months after they opened. I'm not even sure where that, you know, two or three billion dollars that they raised where I don't know sure where any of that money went. I know it didn't come to our neighborhood. And I remember at the time I was going back and forth, you know, between the Bay and, 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 you know, talking with the mayor up there, like, Hey, when we get some of this stuff and on camera, he was like, Oh yeah. The minute those things started to change, they remember they put a restraining order on us. You are not allowed within 50 feet of city hall with city hall. What the hell? Like what? And sure enough, the violence commenced again. And by the fall of 1993, it was in full effect. At this point, I had uh, converted to Islam. I, I was I was working and uh, with uh, some 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 folks there, and I was like, I'm not dealing with the white man's religion anymore. I am going to go and 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 get into something. Because it was the first time I had been shown a Jesus, a God, a deity that looked like me, and so I'm going with it. I'm going with it. This is this is this is this is exactly where I need to be. And so we doing, we marching, we doing all these things, blah, 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 blah. And then one of my good friends gets shot and killed in front of me. Now at this point, I'm out of high school. I graduated, thankfully, in June, but I was not going to know a uh, June of ninety two, excuse me. Um, but I was not going to no college. I was like, hell no, I ain't going to college, I'm gonna work. So I, you know, I started construction. I started working as a maintenance guy. I started as a journeyman and then worked my way up, became a licensed contractor, and that was what I was doing. And I was very cool doing that. I was like, This is what I'm gonna be doing the rest of my life. I'm gonna be building stuff. In fact, that's what my guidance counselor said. She was just like, Look, the best you probably gonna be is a carpenter. You know, and carpentry is not bad. Jesus was a carpenter. So, you know, you can be a carpenter. And I lived into that for a long time. And so my friend got killed. Uh, I was working in the community, working as a contractor, but I knew I needed to give back. See, my mom put that in me from the go. Like, whatever you do, do for the community. And I remember, you know, at the, around that time, um, you know, when, when my friend got shot, you know, it was just it was just crazy. It was just killings going on, going on left and right. But I remember I had to witness it. It was the worst thing. And you had to witness that. And his dying words to me were like, man, the way we grew up was BS. And teach this next generation better than what we had. And it was like a light went on. I was like, man, I need to work with kids. I need to prevent this from happening. I need to do something. And so I got involved with the Boys and Girls Club. I got involved with trying to help organize in there. 
And then at the funeral, I remember this was right after. I mean, I got involved with the Boys and Girls Club for the, like the next, you know, four months after that. But at the funeral um, of my friend, I remember it was a guy who was saying, "Look, man, I want to, I want to, I want to help you guys. I want to work with you guys. I want to be be around you guys." And I was like, "Man, I don't know about that, man." And I remember my youth pastor knew him, and he was just like, "Oh, man, you got to hang out with this guy." I was like, "Nah, man," but he kept showing up. He kept showing up. And he kept us from doing stupid stuff because, you know, anytime somebody gets killed, you know, it's like the next thing you thinking about is like, I'm, I'm going to take revenge. I'm going to take another person's life because they took somebody. I want to inflict the same kind of pain that I feel onto them. But he kept us from doing that. And we'd have all these debates about Jesus and the Bible and this. I'm like, man, why are you, why are you, you, you follow a white Jesus, man? We got the black guy, the true Allah, right? <sighs> He didn't even reveal that he was a pastor until like five months later. So now we're about in in late 94 going into 95. Now, at the same time, I was also involved in the music industry. And uh, part of that had me going back and forth to L.A. And I and and, um, you know, I would go to what was called the NAM show. I love the NAM show. NAM show is National Association of Music Merchants. Um, and it, it all was great. It was great. I used to love going there and you see free concerts. It was just great. Just being part of that whole scene. Right. And I remember he came back and he was just like, this is the pastor dude came back and he was just like, you know, the next, the next, the following week. And he was just like, look, man, I'm going to be having a revival. I want you to come. And, you know, outwardly, I was just like, hell no, nah, man, I ain't going to that mess. You know, I had to look good in front of my friends. Right. But in my mind, I'm thinking, OK, I got to do something. Now, this is already mid 1995. We're going into June of 1995. And he was just like, look, I was just like, look, I got to do something. This is what I'm telling myself. I got to do something because I'm either going to end up like my friend. I'm going to end up in prison. or I'm going to end up in this cycle. And I didn't know what to do. I'll back up a little bit here. One of the movies that got me thinking about this was the film Menace to Society. If you've seen it, you know exactly what I'm talking about. See, I was that character, Kane. But what happened was interesting in that film, spoiler alert, is the main character, Kane, dies at the end. That was the first time I'd ever seen that in a film that I actually liked. The main character died. I'm thinking that he's going to like, you know, he's going to make it. He's going to go to Kansas City. He's going to go with Ronnie and they're going to have a great life and they're going to raise kids and they're going to be all right. Nope. And that stuck with me. I remember the, the credits are rolling and I'm like still in the theater like, whoa. That was a genesis for me to start thinking about broader things bigger than me. And it culminated with. Pastor Bobby Mitchell Sr., which I got to know him, and that's who he was, when he said, I want to invite you to the revival. Very long story short, I went. But I didn't just go because I, that he handed me some track. I went because he had a relationship with me, and I trusted him. If he hung with us, well, let me go check out what he needs to say. The second part of that is that I had a dream. And in this dream, uh, it was me. And I was sitting out in front of my church well, the church he, he pastored at. And I remember, you know, people going in saying, hey, Dan, you want to come in? You want to come in? I'm like, nah, man, I ain't going in there. And the more I denied, the crazier it got outside. Like people started, you know, fighting and all this stuff. I'm like, oh, this is crazy. Well, let me move over here. And I remember people coming by saying, Dan, you want to go in? Finally, the last person comes and says, Dan, please just come in. I was like, man, but all those people in those churches are hypocrites, man. It's like, I know. 
but just come in anyways. It's better than what's going on out here. And I thought about it, I remember looking, and I was like, nah, nah, I ain't going. Nah, I ain't going, yo, I ain't going. He's like, okay. So he went in, and the minute that last person walked in, the door's closing, it went nutty outside. I mean, people started killing each other. It just started, I was like, oh my God, I was scared. And so I ran to the doors then, and I started banging on them, banging on them. And I could see through the window that the people in there, they're praising God. They're up there singing and everything. And that's how I woke up with two fists, like I'm banging on a door. And that was like my key. I was like, okay, I got, I got to do something. So he made an altar call at the end of the week. I went up, rededicated my life to Christ, baptized the third time. It stuck this time. And I began youth ministry. I started working with kids. And... That's my story, y'all. That is my story. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> oh, my. It's the problem with testimonies, y'all. See, most testimonies end right there. <laughs> you know, but I can't. That was 1995. It's 2017. What the hell you been doing for 20 two freaking years right well to speed some things up i mean here's the thing look i got involved i was still working by vocational at the time um i got involved uh with the church i became a youth pastor by vocational youth pastor um you know and life seemed really good i ended up going back to school uh and uh starting my ba uh because i got involved with young life and young life i wanted to become an area director and so young life was just like look to do that you got to go back and get a BA. So I was like, all right, here I go. Got involved with that. And then as I'm graduating college and I'm going off to area director school, I'm thinking to myself, man, I'm just, this is great. I don't need anything else in life. Well, that's when my wife shows up. Well, my soon to be wife. Now, Keep in mind, Dee has been still involved in my life. In fact, every year, uh, so we moved um, away from Texas, uh, my mom and I, but every year we would go back. We would drive back. We'd make that that trek from Northern California all the way to Menard. It was 1,600 miles, and we'd make it. And we'd go and hang out, and we'd go on and be with Dee. She only came to California twice, um, just because, well, actually three times, just because just planes. And, she, you know, she was old school. She was born in 1918. And so planes for her were just kind of like, mm. and, and quite honestly, Didi loved, loved the rural community. She loved small towns. Everybody knew her. I invited her many, 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 many times to come out to California and she just didn't want to stay. And so that's keep that in the background. So she's been, you know, we've been going to see her every year. It's great to do that. And so right around 2000, I meet my wife. And it was that, you know, I was like, oh, I'm not going to meet my wife in young life. And yep, you sure did. You met her. And uh, we met and married uh, within 11 months. Uh, I just I just knew. And I always thought, oh, you're not going to. I just knew we were at the um, we, were, we were at the, the, the young life headquarters in uh, Colorado Springs, Colorado. And uh, I remember, you know, looking over. And I remember the first time I saw her because I saw the back of her hair. And I just I loved her hair. I was like, oh, it's long and curly and brown. I remember seeing her. I'm thinking she's really cute. So the next, you know, the next break, I went on and sat over to her with her next to her. Right. You know, and I was wearing my Aqua D and everything. Right. You know what I'm saying? Your boy looking it up. <laughs> and so um, 
yeah, it was cool, man. You know, but I was still, I was hanging with my good friend Ray Castellanos, and I was just like, yo, man. Um, but I ain't looking for no white, right? You know, but I remember that night it was a football game playing, and I remember she came to the room and she loved football, like she was just hanging. And I was like, what? And I remember that, you know, after the game was over, everybody's leaving and everything, right? You know, it was like, ah, she's great, but it's not like I'm gonna marry her, right? <laughs> oh man, it was crazy. And yeah, man, after that, I got, I was just like, look, I really like this girl. I was like, I'm gonna give her a call. This was, this is what, this is way before texting, y'all. So all you youngins listening, there was no pictures to be sent. There were no text messages. We had calling cards, okay, calling cards. And so. The, I, I filled up my calling card. I was calling her. Well, first of all, I sent her a card. Um, and I was like, okay, let me, let me put my, let me put my stuff out there. So I sent her a card, handwritten. Um, and I sent her a brown bear, right. To represent me is, is a brown man. Right. And I sprayed it with my little clone. She liked my clone. Yo, man. It, 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 yep. The rest is history. Well, I, I proposed to her on April 15th. 2001 um at the airport at the sfo airport san francisco airport this was before 9-11 uh so we could go right up to the gate um i you know i went up there i got there early um and they actually i got up there to the gate and the, and the people were like oh you proposing i was like yep they're like oh so they called ahead on the plane so they detained her in the back and so she's the last one off the plane i had my boy paint me this big picture of emily will you marry me i had the ring i had the rose everything right there and so i was on the loudspeaker there's like a hundred people there in the terminal all waiting for this and i was like emily will you marry me and she said yes and she said yes and there we go happily ever after right oh man this is where the fun begins that's why it's so important to, to remember just because somebody gives their life to christ or just because they rededicate themselves to a particular religion or denomination doesn't mean that stuff ends. See, that's what I'm saying. The life is ups and downs. We all have these valleys. We all have these these places. My faith was just starting to become profane to certain people. And for years, I had been discriminated against by white people. I'd worked through some of that hate. I'd worked through some of that anger. I had put some of those things uh, behind me, or so I thought. But I had never been just completely hated on by my own community, African-Americans. So here's the thing. I got involved with the church, the local Seventh-day Adventist church there. I became a youth pastor there. Um, and the person I called my mentor, my youth pastor, actually ended up becoming my boss uh, for Young Life at the time. And on paper, you know, it sounds great. It sounds like, oh, man, you know, um, <laughs> you know, I get to work with my boss. I get to, to, you know, to go and work in a Christian environment. I can share. I don't have to worry about sharing my faith. Yeah, right. That just sounds good on paper. Never go into business or have any kind of dealings with money with friends or family. So as it, we moved on and as we, you know, built and developed and all that good stuff, you know, it's just I got to the point where I was like, okay, I, I'm. <laughs> I'm self-aware, right? <laughs> like Cyberdyne systems and stuff, man. I like, I'm, I'm self-aware now. And I'm like, I don't, I want to take the ministry that I see in the direction that I feel God is calling me to go. So that kind of started the tension. I took over and assumed the, the ministry that my mentor used to run. He gave it to me, right? So I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to take good care of it. And who better to take care of it then you'll trusted mentee. Well, so I thought. So that started some beef, but it wasn't big. I was like, all right, we can deal with that. 
But when I got married, my wife is white, racially. Ethnically, she's German, Scottish, but racially, she's white. And I didn't think that was necessarily going to be a problem. But the bigger issue was that she was not Seventh-day Adventist. See, here's the thing. In my old community, to come into the community, A, you had to be approved by the elders. Okay. B, you had to go through this kind of initiation process that people kind of approved. So it wasn't just a matter of getting your parents approved, but it was also about getting the elders and all those communities. See, I didn't know any of this stuff because it was all nonverbal. It was just one of those things that, you know, people just did. And so if the person that you were bringing into the community was not a Seventh-day Adventist, wasn't part of the denomination, then they had to become, and it's usually on the second or third service, and they rededicate themselves. And so, of course, I brought her to church, brought her in, second or third service. Here it is. We're having an altar call, and she doesn't go up. This is when stuff starts to hit the fan. So we were married. We were married on November 3rd, 2001. And the, it, it, oh my gosh, this is when it started, when the, when the crap started to hit the fan. So we got married at her church back in Minnesota. Uh, and then we came back, we moved. I had, we, we moved both and she'll tell you, Emily will tell you, man, it was just rough moving. When, uh, when I have her on, uh, here on one of the episodes, we'll, we'll share a little bit more about just that whole thing about, um, us being together. But for now it was just, it was tough, but we were both in love. We were like, all right, you come to my community. I introduce you. I'll bring you in. But then right off the bat, people started tripping like, well, when is she going to, you know, when is she going to convert? When is she going to become like us? And at this point, I'm like, whoa, this is starting some crazy stuff. And my wife is just like, look, um, I'm good. No, I'm I'm good. No, I don't I don't I don't I don't need to. In fact, you know, she, she's telling me like, look, we I, I don't feel comfortable at this church. And that's big, right? Because I'm like, what the what the heck you do? I just got married. I'm I don't feel comfortable. Oh man, yo, it was a tough time for me to say the least. I'm caught between my community that raised me, but now they're starting to say some crazy stuff that I ain't never heard. Crazy stuff like, look, it's not enough to accept Jesus as your savior. You have to accept the Sabbath as your savior as well. And I was like, whoa what yeah it's not enough you know and then you know and then i had this crazy so pastor mitchell had already left and the Adventist tradition most pastors leave every six to seven years he had his time he ended up leaving so we ended up getting this that well we ended up getting a really fundamentalist pastor he ended up leaving and then we ended up getting this other pastor who was cool he was great but then he always wanted to get to a bigger spot so it was just our church was like a uh, was like a um, a staging ground, if you will. And so then he went on and then we ended up getting a local guy. And this brother was eccentric to the team. The thing about it is, is that now that I've been around the block a few times, he was just a medium sized fish in a very small bowl. And he knew how to talk and knew how to carry himself. And he was very eloquent in the way he did it. He ended up becoming the pastor. So now he's having all these conversations with me. He's like, well, how come you're not coming to church? you know, church, you know, this and this and that, you know, you know. And so then people started to encourage me to divorce my wife. I said, wait, I just got married. Yeah. Well, she's leading you down the path of destruction. Yo, this was one of the most strenuous times in my life. And I'm asking God, like, God, what am I to do? What is the check? Show me a sign. 
And I remember we were going back and forth. And at this point, I'm going at it with my mentor. I'm going at it with that. And, and he just had too many irons in the fire. But, you know, you're young. You don't think about these things. He's my mentor. He's my boss. He's my best friend. He's like, wait a minute. He was my best man at my wedding. That's just some crazy stuff. But it was what it was. And so we, you know, we getting into more and more arguments because he's, you know, he's you leading the season. You doing this, you this the wrong way. And I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm oh, man, it was just it was work was involved. Church was involved. It was just all a, just a nasty, nasty mess. <laughs> and so um, I ended up getting fired. He ended up firing me, um, ended up firing him, me and my wife because my wife ended up coming on or Emily ended up coming on um, as a, a part time uh, on in, in my area. And then he ended up firing me. And then. It was like, whoa, how can you do that? Like, oh, man, I felt my entire world coming apart. And then people that I thought were my friends now started to turn their backs. People who I thought, oh, man, we got your back. We're going to be there. It was, they was not around. And it was the first time that I genuinely felt alone. But I had my wife. And I cling to the, to the notion that God had brought us together. I really do believe that to this day. And I was like, man, I don't know what to do. And I was ready to just, you know, cause I was like, man, we, I'm, I'm out of a job. I need to go find work. And my wife was like, look, it's time for us to go. I don't like it here. It's time for us to go to Southern California, go to grad school. This lined up around the same time of, with me starting uh, Fuller Theological Seminary, started my master's and it was like a breath of fresh air. Oh man, those times were rough. But man, they were good. One of my first classes was Job and human suffering. Then I started to learn more about the Bible. Then I started to learn more about just how we understand theology in context with culture, with language, the hermeneutic. I learned theodicy. I learned about how we construct these ideologies around biblical themes and then make them into truth. I learned what Kelly Brown Douglas refers to as these these traditions that we have built up into truth and i begin it begin to open my mind in a completely different environment and that's where i would begin to say my faith started to really intersect with the sacred the secular and the profane see life made sense prior to me getting excommunicated from my community right you pray a prayer and things work out sin and evil and good were clear it was binary it all made sense, but now it didn't. As I always say, the theological highway of my life ran out. I didn't have any more answers. I was in an uncharted territory. Midway through my master's, I knew I wanted to uh, teach. I taught high school and I knew I wanted to teach, but I knew I wanted to teach college. And I talked to my mentor at the time, different guy, because by this point we weren't even talking. It was that this was it. This was like the break. And, and I, in fact, I haven't talked to that brother in over a decade. I've tried to. But you know how it is, man. You know, when you've always been in charge and now somebody's at your same level, it's challenging. It's challenging to have those conversations. And, I, you know, I sent him letters and I sent him, you know, different, uh, you know, uh, communiques to, to, to have these conversations. But. He just wasn't willing. I remember one point he was like, oh, well, you know, you can come out to my place and, you know, we can talk. I was like, look, I'll do that with the understanding and notion that the next time you're going to come to my place and we'll sit down on my turf. Never got a response. And so, you know, we uh, yeah, we 
we just didn't. We just didn't, uh, uh, you know, end up doing that. And you know what? I'm and, I, and I'm okay with that at this point in my life. Um, like I said, halfway through my master's, I knew I wanted to teach uh, college, and I thought, oh, I'll be okay with a master's. I, you know, you can just teach at the community college level. I'm, I'm good. I don't need to go on and get a doctorate. And my mentor at the time was like, look, you need to go on and do that. You're already going to be disrespected as a black man don't let them have one other line of ammunition against you by not having your doctorate. So graduated with my master's in 2004, started my PhD uh, that fall, uh, finished up in 2007. And then of course entered a world of hurt in the environment of job hunting in higher education. Oh, it was crazy. It's crazy. It was nuts. Um, and you know, this, this lined up around the same time my wife and I are starting to talk about depression and how those things are affecting me. Cause now I have the space to start thinking about some of these things that have been around for a long time, unpacking what I think about my dad, unpacking what it was like to be chased by white people, to be shot at by white people, to be having those things put on me. And those manifest themselves in different ways, folks. Um, and, you know, I was at a point in my life where <sighs> this is my third career, you know, fourth, if you include the underground economy. Uh, but uh, it was my third career. And so I wasn't in a place where I knew I, I was like, this is it. I mean, I, I, w- I want to do it, but I also don't want to lose it over something. So I'm like, I, I need to go and find help. So I started counseling, started therapy. Um, it took me a while to get on um uh, to, to get on medication for depression, uh, simply because I just, I, I just refused. I didn't want to be on that. Uh, but thankfully I listened to my wife and got on it. Uh, and my understanding of just God changed a lot. I always tell folks, if you are interested in the journey of faith and really want to get at it from, from, from a critical perspective, be careful because you know, you're not going to come back the same. And if you do come back, uh, like I said, you ain't going to be the same. And number two, you're going to have a completely different understanding, which will offset a lot of people. So I felt the academy was really a good place to be in in, in that in, the, in those spaces. So graduated 07, had a really hard time finding work. Uh, in 2011, we became homeless because I lost all my work. And we ended up moving in with my in-laws, which was crazy. Here I am with two advanced degrees, publications, two books, and I am homeless. What in the hell is going on? And again, I'm questioning God, like, God, what is happening here, right? As if, you know, depending on where your theological, you know, premise and prowess is, you know, it, yeah, you can think God is up there trying to, you know, orchestrate some of these things. But at this point, I'm just saying like, well, there were a lot of circumstances which built this position. You know, a deteriorating economy, a a housing boom crisis that manifested itself in bad loans, uh, which then trickled down into higher education. Nobody was hiring. Los Angeles is an oversaturated market um, with higher education. Everybody wants to come to Southern California, right, to teach. Right around that time, this position opened up here in Chicago at North Park University. I applied and the rest is history. (laughs) And here's the thing. I know this has been a long story, long drawn out story. Hopefully you're still hanging with me here. I'm wrapping it up. I promise. Um, the reality of it is, is that I've entered a new era. Um, 
And I am very thankful for the experiences that I've had. Now, believe it or not, as long as this this this, this episode is, I'm still leaving things out. Um, you know, Didi unfortunately passed in 2009. Uh, I presided over her her funeral. Unfortunately, I was not there. I wanted to be there uh, when she passed, but I wasn't. Uh, my mom's doing good, but she still struggles with addictions. She still struggles. We are trying to figure, still trying to figure out our relationship. Um, you know, uh, I'm sure she would say no to this, but I think, you know, Emily wasn't her necessarily first choice. And I think it's been a challenge, right, to have a white wife. Um, Inter-ethnic relationships are just hard because you get it from both sides. And in the United States, we really don't like mixed. We want you to be one thing. I always tell people, look, racially, I'm black. Ethnically, I'm African-American and Latinx American, Afro-Latino. But race is always on display and ethnicity you can hide. You know, I still have an estranged relationship with my cousins and my, my, and my biological grandmother. Um, my grandfather and biological grandfather passed in 06. And I think we finally made our peace then. It was the first time I ever heard him say he was proud of me. I was always a good for nothing boy, <laughs> but he uh, came down with cancer and then he passed um, right before he passed. We, we made our peace. And so there are some milestones in life. And here's the thing. There is more life to be had. It's a new era. It's a new era. Um, it's a new era because, well, Trumpster is in office. Uh, I am on medication. I do feel better. I don't have to go to therapy every stink, stinking week now, but I still go and it's good. I have a different definition of what manhood is and should be. I'm raising a daughter. My daughter was born in 06. My my daughter's now, you know, going on 11 and going on a tween, a teen. And I, it's a whole new era and stage in my life. But for the first time, I feel grounded and feel whole in a sense. I got tenure now. Some things are clicking. And at the same time, there's a lot more work to be done. And we can never give up that journey moving forward. Thank you. Well, what did you think? Huh? <laughs> Look, I know this thing has been long, so I ain't going to keep you. I just wanted to kind of summarize some stuff here. Thanks for listening. If you've listened this long, thank you so much for putting up with that. It's a crazy story, right? And like I said, I've left some things out. So, you know, ask a brother. What do you think? What are some comments? What are some what are, what are some uh, thoughts that you have? Uh, subscribe. Profane Faith is uh, is on iTunes, Stitcher, Google, any place you find your i your your podcasts at. Um, the best thing you can do right now is just to subscribe. Tell a friend. Uh, rate us in the iTunes store. That would be great. Uh, there are more podcasts coming on White Hodge Podcast. Uh, Profane Faith is the featured one. And uh, just thank you. Thank you for listening this long. And uh, I'm looking forward to these conversations around faith and race and how those things impact us. I'm but one story, right? I'd love to know what your story is. Until next time, peace.